Hey everyone, welcome back. Today we continue from the discussions in our last session, which I hope you remember were about context. We we're talking about understanding any verse of scripture in its context. And I said that there are three aspects to getting the context of any verse right. And last time we covered the first aspect, which is that big picture context of redemptive history. That single story of the unfolding plan of God through history. And that it really helps wherever you are in the Bible to be able to place yourself or position yourself along that timeline. So in today's session, we're going to be talking about the other two aspects of getting the context right when you're reading any passage of Scripture. So the second aspect to getting your context right is understanding the historical and situational context of any given book that you are reading. So in the case of Philippians, our illustration, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's in the book of Philippians. Now, the historical and situational context is that this is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he had planted in a city called Philippi, which was, it was a Roman city in the province of Macedonia. And at the time of writing this letter, Paul was in prison. He was awaiting trial in Rome. And he was writing a short thank you letter to the Philippian church for a gift that they had sent to him, probably money, but it may have been something else, but probably a, a monetary gift to support him while he was in prison. And they had sent that gift to him by the hands of a messenger from their church named Epaphroditus. And having delivered the gift, Epaphroditus had then fallen sick. In fact, he'd almost died from this illness, but God had mercy on him. He did recover. And now Epaphroditus was going back to his home church in Philippi. And uh, Paul wanted to send a letter with Epaphroditus to take with him when he went back. And that letter could then be read to the church in Philippi. So that is the historical and situational context of the book of Philippians. Now that's going to be important for us to understand the context of anything we read within the letter. So let's take our example, Philippians 4.13. That's where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now we're trying to understand that verse in its context. Well, we know that those words are being written by a man in prison, right? That's the historical context, the situational context of this letter. He's in prison. He's also writing this letter to a church which is in some way, shape or form being persecuted for their faith. Because Paul talks about that persecution that God has chosen them to suffer for the sake of Christ. So we know they're suffering, suffering under some kind of persecution. He himself is being persecuted. He's in prison. And it is in that context that he writes these words, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So from the situational context, quite clearly... Paul is not meaning I can create any life circumstances I want or I can go where I want. I can do what I want because it's Christ who strengthens me. I mean, that's clearly not what Paul is saying. You know, when you don't know the context of what you are reading, the temptation is very great to try to apply any verse directly to your own situation and kind of make up a meaning that suits you. 
Because we don't like reading the Bible and feeling like it's, it's irrelevant, that it's not speaking directly to us. So let's take a different example of this. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 47. Let's say you are reading through Isaiah for the first time. Um, and you find 66 chapters of prophecy and you don't really know what's going on as you're reading it. You don't understand the big picture of, of a redemptive history and how Isaiah's prophecy fits into redemptive history. Neither do you know Isaiah's own situation or where Israel was at the time of his writing, what the historical context was of, of his writing this prophecy. And so as you're reading through these verses in Isaiah, you, the temptation is for you to spiritualize them or to kind of allegorize everything you're reading uh, and apply it to your own life. So you just try to apply it directly. And let's take Isaiah chapter 47 verses 1 to 3 as, as an example. Let's read them together. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne. O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstone and grind meal, remove your veil, take off the skirt, uncover the thigh, pass through the rivers, your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not arbitrate with a man. Now, you don't know what that's all about. And so you say to yourself, you know, I think the Lord is speaking to me about my enemies at work. There have been some people who have been treating me really badly at work. And, and I hear the Lord saying that, that He is going to humble them. He's going he's to make them flee from me as naked people fleeing across a river. And uh, He's going to make them ashamed before me. Hallelujah! The Lord has spoken. <laughs> no, I mean, it might sound funny, but listen, we as charismatics do this all the time taking stuff out of its context and just trying to apply it to ourselves. Let's just slow down. Okay, understand, now this is in your workbook, understand that the primary purpose for you to read your Bible is to know God more and in the light of God to know yourself more. It is okay to read large sections of the Bible in their original context without any direct application to your own life. That's okay. It is okay to read the Bible simply to know God, to learn more about God and His ways. And you can learn much about God by reading the Old Testament and seeing how He dealt with Israel and Israel's enemies like Babylon. And in these verses that we just read from Isaiah, God is talking about Babylon and what He will do to them after they have taken Judah captive. So those verses in Isaiah chapter 47 are not about you and me, but they are about God. And they are therefore profitable for us. Furthermore, you will find that if you can understand any verse of Scripture in its original context, you will also often then be able to discern what aspects of it do legitimately apply to you. But as for the rest of the stuff that doesn't apply to you, it doesn't mean that you're not profiting from reading God's Word. Just read it. It is shaping your worldview, and that is enough. You don't have to be able to apply it to yourself directly, so just read on. So, question. Where can you find all this historical, contextual information? Well, 
In most Bibles, at the beginning of, of every book of the Bible, um, they will normally devote a page or two to the historical context of the book that you're about to read. You can then just read that page or two and bear that in mind as you then read through the book itself. But if you want to go into slightly more detail and really research a book that you're working on and that you want to understand, then you can go and invest in an Old Testament introduction and a New Testament introduction. This is a type of book in theological circles called an introduction. And really what it is, is they devote an entire chapter to each book of the Bible. So a New Testament introduction like uh, Carson and Moo, D.A. Carson, Douglas Moo did one. Uh, and then I've got that on my Kindle. Then I've got this one by Donald Guthrie. This is his New Testament introduction. You can see how big that book is. So what Donald Guthrie does is he devotes one chapter to each of the 27 books of the New Testament. And he goes into great detail around who wrote the book, what date was it written, what was the occasion, why was it written, you know, what was the purpose of the author, what was the situational context of the, of the recipients, uh, and on and on it goes. So... If you're wanting to go into more detail, invest in those. So Donald Guthrie or Carson and Moo for the New Testament. And then there's one, uh, is an Old Testament introduction, which is good called, um, well, the authors are Dillard and Longman. Okay. It's not necessary. If you're starting out on your journey and you're just wanting to be faithful with your Bible reading, that one page or two at the beginning of, the, of each book in, in your Bible will perfectly su suffice. And uh, if, in fact, you take my advice that I gave you in a previous session about getting yourself a study Bible, um, then that one page or two might be actually three or four pages. They go into slightly more detail and that'll certainly be enough for you. Okay, so... That was the second aspect of getting your context right when you want to understand any text of Scripture. That's the, the historical and situational context of the book that you're in. Then, the third aspect of context is this. You have got to understand the immediate context of the verse or passage that you are looking at. The immediate context. So that means you've got to look at what has just been said before that verse, the verses before it. And then you've got to look at what is said after that verse so that you get it in its context. Now, please remember, the Bible is a book. Okay? And while it is clearly not like any other book on the planet, still, it is a book. And when you read a book, you know, any book, you don't just grab some sentence at random out of the book and try to make up some meaning for yourself from it. No, you read that sentence in its, in its context. You must read everything that's gone before that sentence and everything that's come after it to get it in its context. Now, I mean, this may seem like really simple and obvious to you, but, you know, as Christians, we make this mistake all the time. We just take verses out of their context without looking at what the train of thought has been before that verse. And Millard Erickson in his systematic theology, he makes the case this way, and I, I like this quote. Much is made in evangelical circles of the intention of the writer. The message cannot and should not be turned in a direction totally different from that intended by the writer. In particular, evangelicals object to the practice of interpreting a passage not in terms of what the author meant to express, but rather of what the reader finds in the passage or brings to it. 
This is a most commendable concern. The focus is on what the author intended to affirm. That's a good quote. Millard Erickson actually tells a story of a church that he knows that split over this kind of weird interpretation of scripture. And I may get some of the details wrong, so please forgive me. But it went something like this. A particular church was thinking of expanding their building project. Okay, and they were obviously needing to be careful about the financial commitment that that was going to mean for them to expand their building. And as they were praying about this as a church one night, uh, one of their congregants got up in the meeting and read from 2 Kings chapter 13. Now that part of the Bible tells the story of Elisha the prophet prophetically telling the king of Israel to strike some arrows on the ground. And what the king did was he grabbed the arrows that were in the room and he struck the ground three times. So bash, bash, bash. And at that point, Elisha became angry with the king. And he said, you should have struck five or six times. And then you would have struck Syria until you destroyed it. But now you will only strike Syria three times. So the guy gets up, he reads that. And after reading it, he then tells the church that they needed to commit to an expansion project on a ratio of three to five based on the value of the current building. And <laughs> I mean, at that point, I'm sure the accountant who was in the meeting, who was conservative, both financially and theologically, began to roll his eyes. And in fact, that church, because of that prophecy, eventually split over the argument that it caused. And. You know, that's an example of a completely illegitimate misappropriation of a verse totally out of its context. Because that's not what it's saying, obviously. But that's something that each of us do need to be careful of doing as we read our Bible and we're trying to understand what it means for us. Okay, so back to our discussions on Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We've seen how the big picture context of redemptive history helps us understand how it is that Christ strengthens us through the Holy Spirit. And he can do so because he has authority now to do it. We've also seen how the historical and situational context helps us understand that verse. Because Paul is in prison and he's writing to a persecuted church when he says that Christ strengthens us. So, next question, how does the immediate context now, our third type of context, how does this help us understand the verse? Well, if we go back just a few verses uh, and we read what happened before this, this is what we read. Now, concentrate as hard as you can as we read the verses that lead up to Philippians 4.13. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Okay, i just stop there for a second. Because we know the historical and situational context of the letter, we now know what Paul is referring to here when he says that their concern for him has been revived and has now been shown. He's talking about the gift that they had sent him in prison by the hands of Epaphroditus. That was how they showed their concern for him. Okay, Paul continues. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. So now we see that Paul is saying that he was very grateful for the gift that they had sent him, but mainly because it was an expression of their love and their maturity in Christ. So he was making it clear that this expression of their care for him was far more important to him than the gift itself. That he, he, he wasn't having some kind of selfish moment when he got the gift or he wasn't like really stressed about his situation and then this gift had now brought him peace. You know, the money was neither here nor there for him, whatever the gift was, because God had taught Paul through the years how to have joy and peace no matter what his circumstances were. His closeness with Christ and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit working strength within him meant that Paul could walk with God in peace. Whether he had plenty, whether he had nothing, whether he was in prison, whether he was free. And, and, but despite all that, Paul is still saying to him, but I still really appreciate the gift because it's a demonstration of your love for me. And that brings joy to my heart. So that is what Paul is saying in Philippians 4.13 when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It doesn't matter what my life circumstances are. I can do it with joy. I can be perfectly joyful and at peace no matter where I am in life because Jesus strengthens me on the inside despite my outward circumstances. That is what Paul is saying in Philippians 4.13. Now, feel released to go and have that verse tattooed across your chest <laughs> or put on your, on your t-shirt or on your coffee mug. But just understand that that is what Paul is saying in Philippians 4.13. Okay, so in summary, you've got to understand any verse of Scripture within the context of the big unfolding storyline of the Bible. That was the first. Secondly, you've got to understand it in its historical and situational context of the book that you're in. And then thirdly, you've got to understand the immediate context of what you are reading, what the author has just said before and what comes after it. And if you will just take the time to understand those three contextual pointers when approaching any verse or passage in Scripture, it will be tremendously helpful for you to understand what you are reading. Okay, so interpret Scripture in its context. That was the fifth principle for how to read your Bible in this long discussion we're having about how I recommend you do it. That was the fifth one on context. All right, our sixth principle, we're going to finish today uh, with these last two principles, six and seven. Uh, and six I'm going to do very quickly with you, and that's simply this. Let the more clear verses interpret the less clear verses. All I want to say here is that when you come across an obscure verse in Scripture, which you're not quite sure what it means, don't jump to any conclusions. Let the weight of the full teaching of the whole of Scripture always bear upon the conclusions that you draw from a single verse. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. And again, you'll get better at that the, the more you know your Bible. So through the years, you'll get better at when you read a verse... Your, your, the weight of your knowledge of Scripture will immediately be brought to bear on, on what you allow yourself to think about this particular verse. 
Then our seventh and final principle for how to read your Bible is this. Read the Bible submissively. Read the Bible submissively. The reason I've left this till last is I think this is a fitting conclusion to our entire series. If everything we've said about the Bible through this whole series is true, then surely this has to be what it issues in, that we read the Bible submissively. This has got to be the result of it all. So I want to ask you, the other reason I've left to the last is because this is slightly challenging. Okay, this, this is where it really begins to challenge us. Are you willing to submit to everything the Bible says, even if it grates against your pride and it contradicts your opinions? You know, we all have many opinions that are only brought to the surface when they're challenged. Now, the Bible t- tends to do that. So are you willing to submit your worldview, your commitments, your convictions, your desires, um, your decisions, what you decide about your life? Are you willing to submit these things to the word of God? I want to read um, Psalm 131 to you. It's an amazing psalm, very short, written by David, but I think it really summarizes what our heart has to be as we approach the scriptures. David says this, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, nor do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. So stop there. David says that there are things that are too great for him and too profound for him, and his heart is not going to fret about them. So do you know that you don't have to understand everything? God is under no obligation to explain everything to you. And there are going to be times where you can't reconcile two positions that the Bible holds. And yet you're just going to have to accept that God knows best, that God is good, and that he can be trusted. There's going to be some things you read in scripture which are hard. Hard to understand how God could allow a certain thing or hard to submit to where God has made a certain decree about how we ought to live our lives. But will you just trust him, even if you don't understand that he is good and that he's trustworthy? Uh, David continues, surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, O church, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. I don't know if you're a parent or not, but if you remember when you had a newborn baby, uh, you'll remember what it was like when you've just fed your baby and burped him or burped her, and they're settled now and they go fast asleep in your lap and their head is in your hand. And you look at their little face and they look so beautiful and they are perfectly satisfied. Not a care in the world. And they look so peaceful. Now that's how David said he was with God. Though there were some things which were too great and too profound for him to understand. He just trusted that God was good and that God knew best. So wherever we are in life You know, the Bible will speak to us in our particular situation. So, gentlemen, for you, maybe you'll be challenged in this thing of submission when you read that the Bible says that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare. 
into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And maybe that's something that you just don't want to hear. And, and you're very quick to justify how, well, I, I'm going to business. I'm going to, make, I'm going to make a fortune because I want to help a lot of people. And God's called me to make a lot of money so that I can build his kingdom and help people. Okay, fun. But will you read the Bible submissively? That anyone who desires to be rich plunges themselves into destruction and despair. Maybe that's not your temptation. Maybe you struggle, as I do when the Bible says that the wisdom that is from above is willing to yield. That's James chapter 3. Because when someone does something um, selfish or disrespectful to me, my red-blooded manhood does not want to yield. I can argue myself into arguing with someone. You know, I'm righteously angry with them, Lord. What they did was selfish and, you know, somebody's got to tell them, Lord. But no, Stephen, will you love your enemies? Will you bless those who curse you? And will you be, as James says, willing to yield? Will I read the Bible, Stephen, will you read it submissively? So, gentlemen, um, but teenagers, young adults, you're not exempt. For you, maybe as a teenager or as a young adult, when you read the Bible and you read it says that marriage is honorable among all and the marriage bed is undefiled, but fornicators, that's those who have sex outside of marriage, and adulterers, God will judge. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 14. And maybe you want to justify how much, you know, you love each other and why you think that you can sleep with your boyfriend or your girlfriend because no one's getting hurt. It's consensual. You love each other. And actually, you are going to get married. You just can't really afford it right now. Okay, fine. But will you read the Bible submissively? Ladies, for you, maybe it's when Peter says that your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as, in his time, uh, elaborate hairstyles, the wearing of gold, jewelry, and fine clothes. And, um, you know, in our day and age, how do women adorn themselves with, with all those things? But we now also have all sorts of surgical little things and, that, that get done. Well, Peter says, don't let your beauty be in those things. And he carries on. Rather, it should be that of your inner self. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Or maybe it's when Paul says in his letter to Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And maybe when you read that, everything in you wants to argue with it and explain it away. But will you read the Bible submissively? You know, we can't explain everything we read. But will we trust that God knows best, that God is good, that the church is Jesus's, we are his, he gets to make the decisions, and one day we will understand everything. And we will sing that song that we read in Revelation, Just and true are your ways, Lord God Almighty. Now, I understand that some of those verses, you know, whatever category you fall into, they may, 
they, you feel the sharp tip of them. But that's the point why I quote them. Just so that you can feel the sharpness of this question. Will you read the Bible submissively? Because it is hard. And yet can I remind you of a promise that we read David make in Psalm 19. He says this, By the judgments of the Lord your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. In keeping them there is great reward. So read the Bible submissively. Be like a, a baby sleeping in its mother's lap, knowing that God is good and God knows best. Well, that brings us to the end of our series on Scripture. I trust this whole series has been a massive blessing for you and that you do feel empowered and equipped by it. Uh, may the Lord bless you. And I pray that you will give your life to reading His Word all the days of your life. And you will be astounded after many years when you look back what God has done in your life through giving yourself submissively to His Word. So that brings us to the end of this course. Uh, thanks for joining me. And I will see you on the next one. Cheers for now. Well, if you are watching this, it probably means that you have just finished the God-breathed and profitable series. And I am so, so happy that you've done that because I really believe, and I'm sure you know this already, that an appreciation for the Bible is the greatest asset any Christian and any person, in fact, can have. So, the question now is, where to from here? Well, firstly, I hope that your small group who you did this course together with stays together. But I have another challenge for you in the Lord. And not surprisingly, I want to turn to the scriptures to make my case to you. So, many of you would have done my five foundations course after you first responded to the gospel. And for those of you who did do that, you will remember that in that course, we looked at the five foundations of the Christian faith listed in Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 to 3. And in those verses, the writer to the Hebrews lists repentance, faith, water baptism, receiving the Spirit, and resurrection and judgment as the five foundation stones of the Christian life. And it's to those verses that I again want to turn now, but we're actually going to pick up the train of thought slightly earlier at the end of chapter 5. Now in these verses that we're going to read together, the writer is lamenting the immature state of these Hebrew believers to whom he's writing. And he's just said to them that there are things that he would love to teach them, but he can't because they have become dull of hearing and they are unable to understand things in the faith that are a little bit more difficult. And then he says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Immaturity is not to be commended in Christianity. But perhaps said a little more pointedly, needing to be fed when by this time you should be feeding others 
is a state which the Bible laments. And so, I want to encourage you with these words which we've just read, that by this time you ought to be teachers. And I'd like to suggest to you that having gone through the Five Foundations course, if you have, and now having gone through this course on the Scriptures, you are probably more prepared than perhaps you think to be able to lead others to the Lord and teach them the basics of the Christian faith. You can do it. And so here is my challenge to you in the Lord, that you should now actively seek to be a witness for Jesus. And my commitment is to put a world-class resource in your hands that will help you to do that. So, what does it mean to be a witness for Jesus? When Jesus began his ministry, he called two fishermen, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, and he said these words to them. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And through the ages, that same call has gone out to all those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus wants to make you a fisher of men. This is how Jesus reaches and saves the lost. Through the faithful witness of people just like you. So... How can you do this most effectively? Well, there are many ways to do this, from simply telling someone what Jesus has done in your life, telling them your testimony, uh, to giving them a Bible or giving them a good Christian book, like Tim Keller's The Reason for God. That's a great book to give unbelievers. Um, Or you could invite them to church with you. But I am going to suggest a specific strategy to you. You will remember that in Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius called for the Apostle Peter to come to his house and explain the gospel. When Peter got there, Cornelius had called a whole bunch of his friends and relatives together. And so Peter got to preach to all of them and they all got saved on that memorable day. Zacchaeus, likewise, the tax collector who climbed up that tree to see Jesus as he was passing by. When he had invited Jesus to his home, he also gave a feast for all of his dysfunctional and wayward friends with Jesus as the guest of honor. And then before them all, he proclaimed how his life had been changed by Jesus. Here's the point I'm making. Inviting people into your home, no matter how big or how small it is, is a massively powerful way to reach people for Jesus. It always has been. It always will be. The massive success of the Alpha course internationally has proven that that is so in our own generation. So, in addition to the small group which you are currently in, my challenge to you is to make a list of all the people that you know who do not know Jesus. Family, friends, work colleagues, neighbors. And invite them to participate in a small group study in your home or a coffee shop, or somewhere where you are taking responsibility for being hospitable and reaching those around you who are in your sphere of influence. And that then leads us to the next question. What to do with these people? Well, you may decide to do something directly evangelistic, like the Alpha course. If you think that a lot of the people in your sphere of influence are ready for that, However, I have a certain conviction on this matter, which I'm now going to share with you. 
Courses like Alpha are excellent for people who are already in the know. They have some kind of understanding of who Jesus is or what Christianity is because of the school they went to or the culture that they grow up in. But I believe in our generation in the West, we are fast becoming what is known as post-Christian. And we cannot take even the barest knowledge of the Bible or Christianity for granted anymore. And as you read through the book of Acts, you will see that the Apostle Paul used a very different evangelistic strategy with, on the one hand, Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, and on the other hand, people who'd had absolutely no exposure to Judaism or Christianity. When he was witnessing to the Greek philosophers who fell into that latter camp in Athens in Acts chapter 17, he did not even speak about the cross. Instead, he based his whole message on the one thing that he knew was a point of contact with all human beings, the witness of creation and conscience. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about this now, but I believe Romans chapter 1 and 2 clearly teach that the starting point of witnessing to completely unchurched people and beginning a fruitful spiritual conversation with them is to appeal to their knowledge of God through creation and through conscience. In other words, in the world that we are living in, I think we have to take a step back. We have to be slightly more patient in our approach to witnessing to people before just jumping in and telling them about Jesus and the cross. Go and read Acts chapter 17 and you will see a perfect example of what I'm talking about. So, while I am a huge believer in courses like the Alpha course, which is 11 weeks, but assumes some Christian knowledge, it, it actually was developed as an early discipleship course. For a long time, I wished that there was a course which I could do with some of my unbelieving friends that was shorter than 11 weeks, but also started further back in the process and used creation and conscience in a far more intentional way, just as Paul did with this kind of audience. And that is why I am so excited about the course that we've developed called Can We Know God? We call this our pre-evangelism course because it is especially designed to be done with people who have little to no Christian background and it intentionally appeals to the global witness of creation and conscience to lead people to begin to engage with the God of the Bible and then Jesus himself. The power of this little Can We Know God course lies in firstly it's only five weeks five sessions so it's a relatively short commitment that you're asking people to make secondly it is specifically designed to reach people in a post-christian or non-christian world so it starts the conversation about spiritual things the way the bible tells us to and then thirdly because it's a video-based course for small groups it enables unbelievers to begin their journey towards Jesus in an environment in which they are making friends and having stimulating discussions with those around them. And what that does, it makes it far easier to then invite those people to something afterwards because they have begun to enjoy the environment. And of course, the power of it is that after the five weeks is, is complete with these people, 
you can then make a more direct evangelistic invitation to them, whether that's then to do an Alpha course or to come to an evangelistic service at your church or whatever. So I think this is an incredibly powerful little course and I am super excited to be able to put it into your hands with this challenge. Go and make a list of people and host a Can We Know God course in your own home. And watch how God blesses you and others through it. You can download the five videos and the participant workbook and all of the other resources at barleyfield.org. You will not regret it. God bless you.